G'day and welcome to Radio Notes, where those in music talk life and those in life chat music and more. Today I'm going to provide you with the full edit of a chat with our guest, Jump Daddy. Throughout season four, I'll be playing excerpts from this very interview, so you'll be hearing it again if you listen then. But today, no intro-outro from the wonderful Tammy. This is just the rawness of the edit, and I thought as an end-of-year treat, I would share it with you. So just repeating, this is the full edit of the chat with our guest today, and then throughout season four, there'll be some nuggets from this very chat that will appear and be woven into our episodes then. But for now, let's cross over to me uh, down at Grange. The Dad to Me podcast will be having season two in part of 2022. As we head to the end of the year, it's a time to think about, well, many things, including about being a father. Our guest today is not yet a father, but it may well be on the cards. <laughs> Here at Radio Notes, we talk about people in music talking about life and those in life talking about music. Mm. But firstly, Jump Daddy, welcome to Adelaide, South Australia, and welcome to Radio Notes. Thank you so much, John. It is genuinely a thrill to be here and for the listeners maybe picking up a tinkle or a whisper in the background, we are beachside Grange in South Australia, so it's a real treat. Jump Daddy, let's firstly, I guess, get that elevator pitch Dad to Me is a podcast where we wrangle adult children and get them to fess up to the questions they've always wanted to ask their dads, but it's always been a bit too awkward or a bit scary, or they just felt they'd never had that kind of relationship. We get them in the studio, get the questions on tape, then we get those adult children out of the studio and get their dads in their place. And the interesting part of that dynamic is that when there's not a family member breathing over their shoulder, these dads open up about these questions or these stories that have so long wanted to be clarified and finally now can be. I guess there's also that broader issue of men not always opening up about Mm. their feelings and Mm. particularly this generation. So you're talking about 30, 40 year olds, maybe sometimes younger, but primarily that sort of age, talking to a generation that were very set in their ways Mm. and very protective of how they would express their emotions as well. Is that what we're going to discover? Yeah, absolutely. I I think myself and my co-host, Dr. Tom, definitely had dads to more and lesser degrees, as you say, very protective of their inner thoughts, feelings, emotions. And of that generation, that I suppose baby boomer generation that has spanned, well, various worlds where in the mode they grew up, it was very much the masculine place to not be expressive to be as stoic as possible and yet within their lifetime masculinity what's asked of it what's expected of it what's promoted as positive has done a 180 degree turn and this is where the podcast has an element of time travel to it doctor Mm. who-esque if you're that way inclined (laughs) in that you do get to go back you get to hear about the now but also the then that affected Mm. the now and the annex between the two absolutely and i think that was something we, we really wanted to, to open up for our participants to get to know dad in particular a, a little bit more, particularly the dad in particular before they were around, before they were born. We had one of our participants say, I hadn't conceived of the fact that my father actually led a full life before I was around. And so often, well, we know that's the case so often we act like it isn't so often we act and really engage with our parents particularly dad 
in a way that's kind of frozen in amber from primary school or high school, that level, that depth, that rhythm of conversation. And that's also the time when the mothers would stop work. If they were working, they would stop to just look after the children. There was Mm. that particular generation. Absolutely. Uh, But the fathers didn't necessarily do that. But what were they missing out by not doing those kind of dynamics as well? The fathers had a different relationship to the child. And so what we found is pretty consistently that dad is close. Dad is generally really well liked. But in so many ways, dad is just a bit unknown to so many of us that yeah, we, we know the surface level dad, but we haven't had that sheer amount of time that we might have spent with mum growing up. And so there's just so many aspects to dad that we don't know about. And that's what this podcast is, is trying to delve into. Well, ours is about getting people in life to talk about music. Mm-hmm. So let's talk about your dad. Please. Des. Yeah. Which record did Des introduce you to as a teenager that stuck with you? <laughs> well, when I... When I was in primary school, so a little bit before I was a teenager, I have such a clear recollection when I first took up clarinet as part of the junior band, dad went deep into the Glenn Miller, into the 1940s jazz. What really comes to mind is something like Chattanooga Choo Choo. Oh, so not the Moon Rivers of the world. No, 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 no. Yeah. Nothing classy. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, he absolutely laid it on me. And I really got into, you know, the, the in the moods, the classic 1940s big band standards. And that was always something that me and dad shared and enjoyed it didn't get necessarily get played that much but it was the kind of thing that he would start humming a tune and I would hum along or vice versa and we always kind of enjoyed what is in retrospect you know music that was pretty hot for the age but pretty cheesy now (laughs) the first record uh was a glenn miller and his orchestra uh cd can't remember the exact title. I think it may have just been called Glenn Miller and his orchestra doing those 1940s, 1930s jazz Your standards. Black and white sort of CD cover. That kind of a thing. Yeah. $2 bin. Yeah, yeah I, I can't say that it would have stretched Dad's budget. But uh, yeah, definitely got to work out in the old CD player. So the first gesture of musical giving from him was that of what you were part of. Definitely, definitely. And, and I think him showing a genuine interest in what I was up to and obviously trying to inspire me to take the clarinet in this case further. That never happened. But I suppose looking back on it again, it, it's one of those things we realise, huh, Dad was, had really taken note of what I was doing and trying to get into and he tried to reinforce that with a little bit of a purchase or two. We can find out more about Des through the very podcast you do, but I want to touch on a few things more about him to get a sense of mm. your dad to you yes. kind of scenario to, yeah. to take a phrase of the show. And that is that he was a director of television, a director and producer of television of the likes of Behind the News here yep, in Australia, absolutely. which is a children's education program, well-respected. Dad was a career producer and director at ABC TV. So yes, produced and directed on Behind the News, Media Watch, Play School. Um, so a whole lot of things. Through, Sorry, through. Media Watch, was that during the Stuart Littlemore years? It was during the Stuart Littlemore years. He was the sort of, dad was the founding producer and director of that show with Stuart Littlemore. I mean, you mentioned that, John, and, and I guess Stuart, the Stuart Littlemore years are the foundational years and Stuart Littlemore is the foundational, supercilious, 
uh, smarmy, but kind of he's a brilliant mind and kind of always right. Well, how do I used to describe him? Suave but surly. Or yes, something? yeah, you know, a, a lawyer par excellence, a, a legendary silk, and really every other presenter like that is really trying to imitate and usually unsuccessfully his approach to, well, garroting. <laughs> His foes and, and anyone who slips up uh, in the Australian media. So, yeah, Dad had some interesting... He had some very interesting times uh, at the ABC. Fascinating colleagues and, and relationships with Bloomed into many other projects. He had a brief time in front of the camera, mm. so as a presenter on BTN. And really, yeah. I think that's where his heart lay. And it would have been great if he got to do more of that. A lot of people, when Dad passed away said the very same thing a lot of people from his ABC days that he was a real performer a very loud sort of flamboyant personality and it would have been nice to see him a bit more on the other side of the camera rather than behind it in production and direction so so coming out from that I think dad had a very ambivalent opinion of television uh, often a very low opinion (laughs) of television in that he'd seen how the sausage is made again and again and again so as a kid growing up we were kind of in a bit of an anti- TV household, to be fair. Certainly, quality programming was frequently enjoyed. So, let's talk, say, sort of 7.30 report or or Four Corners, ABC stalwarts that are still around. But most things were were pretty looked down upon and and TV as a practice, as something to consume in itself, was not something particularly encouraged at all. The parents were always locking away the, uh, the power cord to the TV and very much limiting our screen time. Does that mean, and this was a music show around that same time, you missed out on the countdown years on the ABC? I did, yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. I, a, a lot of the, the sort of kids and teenage programming that for many people are really seminal, I just didn't see it. A, because the stuff in the morning, I was always late to, to, <laughs> late to get up and always racing to school and didn't have time to watch anything in the morning. And then, yeah, B, in the afternoon, I was fortunate enough, we had a gang of kids up and down the street and without the regular option of constant TV in the afternoon being there, we spent more time outside than in. I do want to talk more about music because that's why we're here to talk about, but I want to know about that engagement that you had with those kids at that time. I guess the creative elements of being in a gang without technology. (laughs) Yeah. It's not that long ago and yet it's a different world. It's hard to imagine kids doing as we did in a relatively in a suburban setting, simply just going out after school into the streets, riding bikes, taking one another down to the park, Mm. going in and out of respective houses. Sure, we we might play a video game or two there, but most of the time it was physical activity, basketball, biking, just getting up to minor pranks and hijinks day after day after day, and we didn't think anything of it. But now, 4.30 p.m., approximately the time we're recording today... You'd rarely ever see a kid just out and about having fun. Well, we're at the beach at the moment and that beach next to us, that would be full of kids just running around amok, like the ones who live locally. Right. Running amok down there amongst the sand dunes. Right. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Absolutely. And I can say, dear listener, there is no evidence of that. Nope. There's solitary stoic adults in their various exercise regimes, studiously ignoring each other, but not much more. Talk to us then about Catherine Hill Bay. What was that to you? I suppose Catherine Hill Bay, which features quite prominently in, in episode nine of the podcast when we talk about uh, deceased dads, departed dads. Mm, including um, Des. Yeah. And, and, and so it really focused on my father, Des, and, and an important place to him was Catherine Hill Bay, family beach shack. 
It's funny, whenever I say, oh yeah, my family has a beach house, people, you can see, you know, sort of their eyes glaze over with palatial visions of, you know, sumptuous water views. And so- no, it's a shack, okay? It's, a it's- little bit bigger than a dunny. <laughs> yeah, exactly. <laughs> exactly, with an outdoor dunny. So, yeah. But nonetheless, a place to escape, a place where dad piled up his many, you many You're lucky, interesting- some of us had a long drop. Yeah, well, exactly. <laughs> and I can't complain. I really can't complain. I am a child of relative privilege in this sense. And, and more so because dad in the shack collected all sorts of interesting books and ephemera from throughout the years he had a passion for french and so there was a lot of french literature including some mild if highly titillating erotica mm-hmm. um emmanuel as, <laughs> emmanuel yeah well said as well as you know just cookbooks from the 1950s to oh a 1920s book of etiquette by emily post who at one time as i understand it was the word in etiquette particularly in america absolutely fascinating book about you know at what point do you stand up in a dinner party what do the ladies do what do the gentlemen do for drinks at darts before a wedding how do you write a thank you note again just like kids playing by themselves of an afternoon is something of the past even more so all this kind of formality that emily post book brings back to life what music did you listen to at the Catherine Hill Bay Shack? B-52s would be out of the question. <laughs> uh, a, lot of, a lot of Dylan. A lot of, I tell you what though, the soundtrack to Catherine Hill Bay, Buena Vista Social Club. Like that is, if you want to get the relaxed, we're up at Catherine Hill Bay, we're out of the big city and we're into country slash beach vibes, on goes the Buena Vista Social Club. And that got rinsed by dad absolutely what was the song that was the signature song for your dad that encapsulated who he was uh to mention before chattanooga choo choo of course and billy jean by michael jackson and my dad had a particular emphasis on the lyric i believe and i think is widely held to be the kid is not my son but my dad would always sing it with real emphasis and glee the child is not my son and it just rankled everyone it was a small thing but it was a little eccentricity that my father insisted on and growing up my sister and I particularly in our teenage years big Michael Jackson fans so you can imagine even a small pee like that under the mattress yeah. uh, always rankled yeah it's like <laughs> generations of Billy the Kid fans just going do you not understand the lyric yeah <laughs> never that never even occurred to me <laughs> it may or may not be true that's what like we need researchers for from playing the clarinet in primary school, <laughs> did you extend that musical knowledge through to high school and university or was that it? No, yeah, early high school uh, continued the clarinet, but at that stage you can't really hide how poor you were at playing it. The school had a good jazz program. The first practice, everyone sort of individually was asked to stand up and do a solo. And after that, I, uh, yeah. The writing was on the wall. The mirror was held up to my abilities or lack thereof, and, and I was out of there. What was your relationship, though, with music during the high school years? Never had a, a super adventurous palette in music and really somebody who needed to kind of be introduced to it by a person or a situation so that it could have some sort of emotional resonance for me and then I could really enjoy it rather than necessarily somebody who could just listen to the radio and decide I like this song or I don't like this song, my musical interests were very, very socially informed. Yeah, and, and, and so probably followed the crowd a little bit on, on that number. Uh, fortunately, I had some friends with some really interesting musical tastes. 
You're probably a little bit young for this, but did you ever get a mixtape and a mixtape from someone special? Oh, yes. Well, yeah. So by, by my prime, it was sort of more the mix CD. Ah. It's not as romantic. It's not as romantic. And not yeah. as connecting. Yeah. Because yeah, it doesn't, it, it's lower effort. It doesn't have that real sitting by the record player, that stop, start, record, yep. that care that goes or into a great. Tape. That yep. tape to tape. Yeah, my God. Recorded it, off the radio, then tape Yes, tape. absolutely. Absolutely. I, I was one of the first people with a CD burner. In the entire school, my mum had a home office, so there were some things that came along with that. Um, and I do remember thinking I was pretty cool. My first party, first year of high school, making somebody a party mixtape, and I called it Boris Yeltsin's Party Starters. And I remember putting on what I thought was just sort of a hilarious and upbeat mix of music. And then throughout the party, I later found out that it was passed around as an object of ridicule. Um, <laughs> who is this guy? What a uh, yeah, crappy collection of songs. So um, yeah, my early mixtaping maybe was was cut short by some public shaming in grade seven. What music has brought you joy, mm. Jump Daddy, over the years? Yeah, well, definitely big Michael Jackson fan. And then recently kind of crossed over to becoming a Prince aficionado, where ironically enough, and maybe as difficult it is to put, I think Michael Jackson is great music for kids. Because uh, whatever else surrounds Michael Jackson's life and story, a lot of his music is quite really great to get into. And actually, in terms of lyrical content and focus, kind of not very sexually focused. Prince, on the other hand, is something that I think you can only really enjoy once you're an adult. <laughs> And I was certainly, as a kid, as a teenager, just did not understand him at all. Mm-hmm. But now I've tasted some of the pleasure and pain of adulthood. Oh, man, I, I can never really go back to Michael Jackson as sort of the, my central fandom if I have one in pop music. It's Prince all the way. I was a 15-year-old who played Sexy MF at the Virgin Megastore. Uh- <laughs> and let's just say being the DJ at the Virgin Megastore at 15 years of age, they were a little quizzical about what the kid was doing. This was 2 o'clock on a Saturday afternoon, shoppers. <laughs> I quickly learned about censorship after that one. But what was it about Prince apart from, or was it just that, about the adult nature, the sensuality of the music? Was there something deeper? For me, just discovering, again, as an adult, and I only mean this in the past few years, just what an incredible guitar virtuoso he was, a well-rounded musician and somebody whose range and versatility is, is quite extraordinary. Thinking about all the other acts he actually wrote music for, all these songs that you enjoy over your life and then you realise the penny drops oh Prince wrote that too <laughs> like nothing compares to you by Sinead O'Connor absolutely and I remember quite enjoying Alicia Keys How Come You Don't Call Me when yes. I was much younger and then you hear the Prince version and you're like whoa <laughs> perfect song he was a bit of a workhorse allegedly his uh, female Ooh. producer said that she was on call anytime he absolutely. wanted to record something I, I'm sure he's an absolute Prince would have been I guess like any truly devoted artist whose life revolves entirely around the production of their art would have been a pleasure and a pain to work with. No doubt such a thrill the very first time, but no doubt soon enough the rhythm of the demands is something that uh, could be quite challenging, having worked with some artists now myself. (laughs) We're currently in conversation with Jump Daddy. He is one of the hosts of the Dad to Me podcast, a new series, Series 2, out in 2022. I want to know, because you are from such a podcast, these very kind of questions. 
is there such a thing as dad rock? Mm. Is that just a misnomer that we have for music that we don't like that sounds a bit blokey? Or? Yeah, well, I think I, I think it's purely generational. I, I, you know, I think we might think of say when you said that something like Eagle Rock comes to mind. You I was know, thinking Coldplay. See, so I think it is exactly. So I think it's different for different people. I think dad music simply is music from a different generation for which the child at whatever stage of their development has yet to build an appreciation for. Is there a sense of fond memory within that as well when we do say that? As you, you mm. said, Eagle Rock, and so maybe there, there's an idea of, oh, yeah, this is something that Dad liked and we went driving, or is mm. there something broader in what Dad Rock can be? Touching on uh, maybe what we mentioned uh, earlier in the podcast, it, it can be a sliver, sometimes a sliver that you don't want to see, of the younger man and particularly the younger man in situations where as a young person you're really first getting into your music at those parties, at those formative romantic points of your life. And it was great to hear some of our dad guests in preparation for a live event we did to present the podcast, all the different suggestions that they made and some with commentary of like, if you want to get the party started, this is the track. And just great to see, you know, some of that enthusiasm, uh, some of that advice coming back from, from these guys whose partying days are long gone, but they still have those echoes of dance floors past. And again, growing up, that's not necessarily something you want to know or confront about your dad that, you know, he was a young man on the prowl, <laughs> eyes glinting under the disco ball as he... Met your mum or more likely met or pined after women who weren't your mum. <laughs> Jump Daddy, you've said on the podcast, moving into the future and you being a father, that you want some sort of mm. ideology to take mm. into the next generation. Mm. 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 I'm sure you'll explore that in the coming episodes of said podcast, but what kind of music do you want to know about that you can pass on to that next yeah. generation? Great question. So my dad, Des, who passed away a few years ago, he was very much from Irish Catholic stock. And I know that he had all these sort of Irish freedom fighting songs that he knew and that he would sing very occasionally, almost to himself, that he never shared or taught to me. I don't have anything like that. I'm purely a child of the commercial musical marketplace of MTV or Channel V here in Australia. You're not going to pull out your Doug Anthony All-Star Icon album and go, ah, oh, here's some ditties. <laughs> well, on that note, I, you're reminding me, probably an update to Doug Anthony All-Star is a group called Auntie Donna, uh, whose album I have given a good many listens to and very much enjoy. Maybe something to share when, when the child is older. But I guess I'd love to, as somebody... My name, uh, my actual name being something like one of the most Irish names you can conceive of. I would sure. love to have a bit of a, a bit of a knowledge and engagement with Irish music, I think, just as something that echoes through the generations. And the other thing is, I guess, is a picture of not just what you'd like to, but if there is a partner involved in that process mm -hmm, at mm -hmm, that time, mm -hmm. the shared experiences that you have yeah. whilst that child is being thought of, conceived, yes. and then born. Yeah. Well, a lot of Prince, but again, I think Prince is something that'll have to wait. <laughs> As he said, breakfast can wait. Um, I guess something else that we share, which is a little bit milder, would be Tracy Chapman. A lot of this stuff is 
pretty obvious, but yeah, I, I think that's something I could get a kid into. Tracy Chapman's best works really hew that that perfect line of really beautiful music with kind of really confronting the sadness or the disappointments of life, which I think it, it's a difficult lesson to teach a child, but I think it's something important as well to relate the finite nature of life and, and how difficulty is going to be a part of it, however you're born. How's your journey regarding that ideology find going at the moment? Just give us a sense of mm, where that's That's a at. really good question. Oh, goodness gracious, I, I don't know. I, I started the quarantine last year. I was volunteering for Bernie Sanders in the United States. I guess, I guess I was sort of left wing, sort of almost by default, just sort of growing up and so on and so forth. And it's been interesting, even just the, the past 12 months, really, um, sort of reevaluating and reassessing and really, more than anything, completely disengaging from politics and, and any interest towards that and towards that being a substantive thing that I would want to be very solid about so that I could <laughs> imbue my child with. No, rather, I think probably be more of some sort of moral philosophy or, or spiritual philosophy and I'm, I'm still yet to find or still yet to enter into whatever sect, cult, religion, body of philosophy. What was it about Bernie Sanders? What were you doing? So you were in America at the time? No, no, no. So uh, in Sydney, Australia, but because everything now is done online, including get out the vote calls, we would be calling into Mississippi or California when the time zones align simply yeah. through the power of the internet, laptop, speakers, headphones, and, and you're away. And you're on Red Bull doing all-nighters exactly, because yeah, yeah. of the time zone. Exactly. It was really interesting. And as an Australian, as pretty much every other country on earth, as much as we don't want to admit it, our imagination, so much of it exists in America simply because of the endless media we consume, so on and so forth. And so it was interesting to engage with it at that level, but also, I suppose, very eye-opening in terms of the realities of things and how somebody like Bernie Sanders, who ostensibly I, I very much supported everything that he was about. As time went on, I recognized less and less the candidate that I thought he was and then realized a lot of what's coming out of this is exactly what I, I don't want. And yet it's not even really my business because it's America. Do you have an affection for American music or those particular stories? Sorry, in my head, I'm thinking about an Aussie guy at 2, 3 in the morning calling these Americans voice-to-voice right. voice like we're doing here right, without right, the right. visual, having yes. a conversation yes. and listening to their real feelings if they gave you the time of yeah, day. Yeah, absolutely. Where, as Australians, we're much more equipped to talk to Americans than Americans are to us because, again, we're so... We see their movies, their TV, we're so fluent, we can jump in and out of American accents ourselves, drop of a hat. For them, we're much more of a foreign creature. So I never had trouble understanding whatever anyone was saying, whatever state they were from, whatever ethnicity they were, whatever accent they had. It was much more the other way. But it wasn't hostile either. People were genuinely curious as to why an Australian was getting themselves, even in a very minor way, involved in US politics. And... You know, we just had some really friendly conversations. The American, as much as you don't want to generalize and say, you know, all people are people and blah, blah, blah. The American persona, generally speaking, in a superficial way, in an initial sense, is much more open than the Australian one. It tends to, at least in my experience, people are just much more up for a chat initially and interested in your story and interested in telling their story from the very first time you meet them. Whereas, traditionally speaking, I think this is probably changing a lot. 
but Australians tend to be a bit more reserved. Uh, they, they smell out the BS and work through it. Yeah, yeah, exactly. Whereas Americans are up for a story. They're up for a, a bit of good news. They're up for sharing their own. And it, it was quite fun, actually, once you actually connected to people, calling them for Bernie Sanders. Let's talk about the American music as I was about to get yes. to. Yeah. <laughs> Maybe even during this time that we're talking, what particular American music are you drawn to? Yeah. Well, I mean, again, my, my, my taste of 10, I, I haven't had the most expansive galactic taste in music and again I go I go back to Prince I was listening to a lot of Prince at the start of 2020 my my tastes really have been quite commercially dictated you know the kind of predictable rap late 90s to mid aughts rap features very heavily yeah I guess something though that I didn't expect and you don't expect as as a high school kid there was always that thing you know like I love all music except country music whereas now I love country music when did country come to you the eye-opener was and this this might be for a lot of people uh the oh brother where art thou soundtrack amazing collection of of country singers and that man of constant sorrow song beautiful incredible and just really gives you an insight into the the depth of the depth of musicality and the depth of feeling that country music at its best really summons notion that there's a real audience for country music in australia I was performing at a festival a couple of years back. What was it called? It was called the Man from Snowy River Festival. It was out in country Victoria. And I was amazed. 20,000 plus people pulled into this tiny town and turned it into this sort of country-fied version of, say, like a Burning Man, where they create a city out of nothing for the extent of a festival. And yet it was something that if you're in the city, you never would have heard of. There is this parallel country culture that isn't just in terms of yes there are people who live in rural and regional areas and who are farmers but is a really strong musical and related performing art culture here in Australia that if you're a city person listening to commercial radio or any radio really you'd have no idea about. I think also, as you would have known, we spoke with Andrew Ferris of In Excess and his latest record is a country record. Now that's the singer-songwriter who wrote with Michael Hutchins and some mm. of the Australian classic songs mm. now doing country. So there is definitely something going on there. I think so. I think Australia. so. I think, yeah, there's a real undercurrent there. And it is something real. It doesn't, even though country music, a lot of the stylistic forms, etc., do come from the States. People have taken it and really made it their own here in Australia and really feel a sense of ownership over the music in a way that I think, you know, like that, that most white Australians wouldn't necessarily feel over, say, a genre like hip hop just because of the demographics generally involved. Jump Day joins us to talk, obviously, about the podcast Dad to Me, but someone who you'd probably want as your dad, or maybe not, is a guy called Keith Luby. You've done a little bit of work in and around him, mm, uh, I guess, uncovering his story. Can I ask you in this latter part of this chat to talk to us a little bit about Luby? Under a different name in another part of my life, uh, I'm a film producer. and <laughs> That other hat. That other hat, That yeah. top hat that your dad showed on TV <laughs> that's once. That's it, that's it. Just speaking of dad and Keith connection, Keith Luby, great Australian painter and was very much top of the pops way back in the 1970s, collected by every major gallery in Australia, collected by the Museum of Modern Art in New York, going to the Venice Biennale, couldn't get any bigger. That's when he met my dad and they became friends but then over the subsequent years Keith's profile waned and waned and waned more so than you would expect simply 
a star fading somewhat, but mm. into absolute oblivion to the point where not even the smallest private gallery in Sydney would hang his work. The only place he could sell anything was a furniture store. So my dad, being the ABC TV lifer that he was, decided he wanted to make a retirement project out of Keith's story and to make a documentary film to kind of get to the bottom of what happened to this guy who was absolute star and whose work whatever you think of some of his latter-day stuff, his early and mid-career work is still so strong. Why don't we get to see it or hear it anymore? I think the quote that jumped out at me of the trailer mm. is, he's better than Brett Whiteley. And yeah, certainly in terms of illustration, I would, I would say that's, that would be pretty hard to argue with. And I have heard numerous hours of conversation engagements, particularly in pubs in Sydney when I've been that way, of how great Whiteley is and you must discover it. And I'm like, yeah. okay, fine. But there must be other people. Yeah. And Luby is that other person. Yeah, well, I mean, yeah, if Brett Whiteley sort of known for his really free, sensuous work, focusing on the harbour and the female form, Keith Luby is kind of his polar opposite. If ever you want a powerful, guaranteed, prophylactic experience, put up Keith Luby in the marital bedroom because Keith's work is intense. It's back and forth, back and forth, whether with oil paint where he builds up this sort of thick, I think the word is impasto, almost three-dimensional paintings or talking about his drawings that have been regarded as better than Whiteley, this back and forth cross-hatching to get these incredible gradients and shades to make these works, which are pretty much always about interesting, challenging, controversial people in Australian history. Let me name drop his 1984 Archibald mm. Prize win, which was a double portrait. Now, people are saying it's a portrait of Max Gillies, but in truth, mm. it's a double portrait. Double portrait of Max Gillies as Bob Hawke and then Bob Hawke sitting next to him. Mm. It's a cracker of a work. And there's some great footage in the film of Max Gillies, the subject of the Archibald Prize winning portrait, actually dressing up as Bob Hawke, playing Bob Hawke, as he met Bob Hawke on Parkinson. It's an incredible little bit of tape. Few times have you seen a politician more uncomfortable than when confronted in a hostage-like situation. By your own satirical By your own satirical version. (laughs) Uh, To be honest, Max looks pretty uncomfortable as well. It's a pretty tough gig. (laughs) For everyone involved except Parky, who just has to sit there and crack up now and then. There's something that both Max Gillies and, more importantly, Bob Hawke had, and that is the Australian larrikinism. Talk to me about how essential that is in a father figure. Ooh, that's interesting. From my perspective, that uh, the larrikinism that I would uphold as being good and positive would be that sort of... That, that bit of cheek, that questioning of authority, that doubt in general of accepted truths and that, that willingness to, to kind of talk out the side of your mouth to others to say, hey, this is a bit of bullshit, right? Mm-hmm. Um, I really respect that and I really think that's potentially a really powerful bit of fatherhood where you can, I'm talking as a hypothetical father here, be able to <laughs> share with your child, you know, a bit of a peek behind the curtain of reality and be able to to question some of the things that everyone takes for granted and yet we all kind of know is a bit of bullshit. It's also that thing between father and son of having kinship, I think's the wrong word, but that kind of connection that a father and son should have. Mm. It's it's your thing yeah. you have with inside them. jokes. Yeah. Your own. yeah, absolutely, absolutely. Crucial. And I think that's something you know, even when the time comes, I hope I can build up a, a, a full and impenetrable lexicon of jokes and, you know, references 
when it, when it comes to my own children. Again, if and when. But I think that is something important that you can have as part of your ideology that you want. Mm. Is to be a bit of a larrikin. Yeah, I think so. And myself and Dr. Tom have certainly, in our various guises and personas, all the adventures in between, have certainly cultivated that with each other. And it'd be great to be able to share that with a child or children. What's the best music to try to be a daddy to? (laughs) I love that, man. We could go any which way with this question. The best music to be a daddy. I'm going to go with... You can see I'm really sort of thinking on this answer because I want to come up with something that's going to be sort of practical to use. I think you'll probably want to go for some classical bombast. Um, Maybe something like a bit of Wagner, like real... Well, let's say Ride of the Valkyries, something like that, which inspires fast heartbeat but terror at the same time. Kind of captures that all is potentially exhilarating about about life, about about undertaking a mission, about plunging into the unknown. If you've got the ride of the Valkyries. Dun, 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 Last dun. time I saw the ride of the Valkyries, it went for five hours. <laughs> Do you have that kind of stanima? <laughs> no. <laughs> and on a more romantic note, what is the song that connects you and your long-term partner? I've been beating this drum a few times. I would say Erotic City by Prince. Okay. <laughs> we need to ask then. You get the opportunity to time travel or you get the opportunity yeah. to meet Prince. Yeah. We'll give you about 45 minutes to an hour. Yeah. What's in that conversation you're having with Prince? Oh, and God. I've heard he's a really good conversationalist. Yeah, exactly. And I think he's probably a great conversationalist because he really just, he takes it in directions that he would want to go in just as he did with his music. So I guess I would probably want to ask where his head was at the time we were talking rather than presume anything one way or the other because he's clearly somebody who spends a hell of a lot of time in his own head whether it's working out tunes or philosophical takes or religious takes on life and just ask him a question as open and as simple of where's your head at at the moment what are you thinking on would be a potentially very rich vein to tap with someone like Prince. What's the song that gets you on the dance floor? Because I've got that song, Where's Your Head At, in my head now. Thanks for <laughs> oh, that. Oh, I do love some Basement Jacks. Yeah. Oh, man. Over that, Romeo, Red Alert, and Bingo Bango would probably be my top three. Few things to get me on the dance floor as readily as Basement Jacks. So thank you for reading my mind on that one. Yeah, I thought it would be somewhere in that mix. <laughs> Season two is coming up of Dad to Me. You can find it at the usual outlets. In fact, wherever you're listening to Radio Notes podcast right now, unless you're listening on the radio, you can find Dad to Me. Jump Daddy, thanks very much for your time and joining us here in Adelaide in Grange, South Australia. Thank you so much for having me, John. Thank you so much for doing what you do on Radio Notes. Thank you. Thanks very much to Jump Daddy of the Dad to Me podcast. As I mentioned, this is a full edit of our chat. We'll be revisiting some of this audio in season four next year here on our very show but wanted to share it now so you can get ready for their season two coming up next year for the show notes head along to radionotespodcast.com that website is looked after by the award-winning steve davis